1: to turn Penelope's world upside down.
0: Mm, this is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realised there might be something more between them, watch Bridget in Season 3, now playing only on Netflix.
2: There are some people that I've seen that for the first year of their therapy couldn't even look me in the eye mm-hmm. and we had to write down how they were feeling and map it out and draw it out. One of them's just started university in her late 30s and wasn't able to even talk when we met each other. Like that is huge for me to just be able to give them that confidence and make sure that they feel like they are a part of a community and able to walk with their head held high and enjoy their life a little bit more, you know. (laughs)
0: And. <laughs> Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the serene Chantel Otten. Chantel is best known as one of the country's leading psychosexologists who works out of Melbourne with a team of more than 20. To put it simply, Chantel is the authority on sex, not just for Australian women, but for Australians from all walks of life. She has built an incredibly successful career being one of the leading voices who is responsible for shattering taboos around sex, from what the average sex life should look like to how common, painful sex is, and about how sex can be pleasurable no matter what body you live in. In this chat, we covered everything from why we have sold myths about sex from the moment we understand what it is, about how isolating sex can be if you feel like you're doing it wrong, and why it's important for Chantelle to be vocal about her own sex life with her Paralympian star boyfriend, Dylan Alcott. We adored this chat with Chantelle. Let me tell you, her voice is probably the most soothing voice, the most ASMR-y voice we have ever had on this podcast, and I can. Not wait for you to hear it in this chat. Here's Chantel.
1: Chantelle Otten. Welcome to Shameless in Conversation and to your little dog Saw sitting on your lap. We are
2: very excited to have you both here. Thank you so much. Brought the whole family, almost everyone.
0: Where's Dylan? I mean, he's been on the podcast before, but imagine we should do like a couple chat one time, Zara. You two would be the top of my list. I think you're my favourite like public, I always call you celebrity couple, but you might cringe at that term, but like my favourite public figure couple.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. I think he's on the couch at home. Uh, He's He's done five hours of training today. So I I hope he's having a rest. But do you know what's so funny? We have this like dog camera in our hallway at home and it gives off a sensor. So I actually know when he's at home and I can talk to him through this camera. So I'm like, hey, babe. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he's always like, oh, my God. That is so weird.
1: But I love it. You know, the other reason before we properly jump in, Chantel, that I am very much looking forward to this conversation, and I imagine all our listeners are too, is because I would say you are well-known for many things, but very well-known for having a very beautiful voice. Yes.
2: Oh, I've heard it's like very ASMR. Yes. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. You could yeah. make a lot of money off your voice. Thank you. Maybe
0: I'll talk about that
2: you know, <laughs> with my accountant at some point.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Chantel, we begin every In Convo with the same question, which is, what were you like as a kid? Oh, my God. That actually caught me by
2: surprise <laughs> a little bit. What was I like as a kid? I was very introverted as a child. I have a disabled sister who's 11 months older than me and she got so much attention growing up as she well deserved just figuring out what her disability is because it's global developmental. She has the mind of a seven-year-old. But for me, you know, I felt a bit lost in that space because we were so close together that I actually had a lot of emotional problems as a child. And apart from that, I think like... As she moved into a specialist school and I started to grow, I had to learn how to be more extroverted and how to talk to people because I was always in my own little world.
1: When did you think you realised that you had those sort of issues from that age? Was it much later or at the time did you think, oh, I feel
2: like I need a bit more right now? I knew it then. Yeah, I was very emotional then and I think it was quite disorientating in a way. But I think that if I look back, all of that time gave me the skills to have what I do have now, which I guess is I've been called a little bit, like a witch, in
0: <laughs> a way. Like I've had someone call me a witch because I, not I, can, that I can
2: like see through them. Like I see through some people, and I can really be empathetic towards people's vulnerabilities and and painful experiences.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it would almost make you a stronger person having to go through that as a child. I feel like growing up in that kind of environment with a very either unwell sibling or a sibling that does have developmental delays or mm. maybe suffers with a disability as well. I imagine mm. it was true but it made you a stronger person probably and probably made your family stronger. Would that be accurate? Oh, uh, Absolutely. But I think that was the point where my parents decided that they could never
2: stop working. There's four kids in my family and they were just like, we need to create this life where they're safe. So it gave me not only a platform to talk about, you know, how to empathize with people, but how to work really, really fucking hard to, to grow a life that I would like and to support my sister and my siblings and my own family in the future.
1: You said in an interview that your family were really open when it came to all matters of things, and I wanted you to explain a little bit about that. Like, when you sat around a dinner table all together, was conversation very free-flowing? Was there kind
2: of no boundaries on what was being spoken about? Not at all. No, there's definitely boundaries. So We have a Dutch family that's quite traditional, but I would say they're very eccentric, so we're all quite... Chaotic. We're all fighting for attention at the dinner table. Dylan was absolutely overwhelmed at our first dinner because we were all like screaming across the <laughs> table in passion. It's never like they talked about sex. My parents and I'm like, I know they're still getting late. It's just like so open. And my sister and her partner talk about it as well. And you know, we we all value it in a in a relationship because we know how important it is within a couple. But I would say that, yeah, there were a lot of boundaries on what we could talk about, and my parents were very strict with me growing up. I went to a Catholic school... I wasn't ever allowed to watch TV when I was in my teenage years. I have no idea what happened in like the Hills or the OC. Oh, you poor thing. I've never, <laughs> like I've watched it a little bit now over COVID. But yeah, I had to go to bed by like 9pm, when in year 12 and stuff. Oh <laughs> so I was God. like, like if I wasn't home by 11, I'd be in so much trouble. My phone was confiscated. So I had a secret phone for about three years. I was on the third story of my house, like the attic kind of. That was my level and I used to climb out of my window and scale down two roofs and climb down the fence and and go off and I was very, I was a black sheep, I was very rebellious. I was going to
0: say that would push me to be, I grew up in a strict household as well, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons until I was in like year eight or something. Mm. I think that made me more rebellious, sorry mum and dad, than if they had just let me. So you became rebellious.
2: Oh yeah, it's so weird, like they were so open on some things. Like my dad taught me how to ride a motorbike when I was like five years old and was (laughs) like go like be free and we had to like live off the land like we'd go on these holidays where we just do whatever and we were allowed to climb trees and climb on the roof but not allowed to watch The Simpsons (laughs) because they couldn't control that. My parents were like we want you to have like nature like experience so yeah I think it led me to be more rebellious but also my dad was pretty much a rebel as well in his youth. So I think that's how he was trying to rein me in a little bit.
1: (laughs) So then let's go back to the sex conversations that were happening around the dinner Mm. table because I know that you spent a bit of time in Amsterdam as well and I'm interested given your family culture, do you see key cultural differences between how maybe Australians talk about sex with their families compared Mm -hmm. to maybe how you guys spoke about sex growing up?
2: Yeah, I think so. So I went to Amsterdam because I have a Dutch passport but also because I have got sexology qualifications and education there and I had a lot of friends and all my families there. And I know that our family still for, like, the Dutch demographic is open about those kind of things. They're still a little bit more controversial in that way. I think either it's just my parents, like, are very fine with this topic and, like, think it's great and fun, but I also think, you know, maybe the Dutch culture has helped a lot of that as well. It's it's hard to define...
0: When you were growing up, was there a moment where you felt like, okay, everyone's interested in sex. I feel like a lot of people take a keen interest in learning about it, particularly when you're an adolescent it's all new and it's all exciting and different and sometimes scary as well. But for you, was there a moment where you're like, I find sex interesting in more of an analytical way than maybe the average person does?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's more relationships. I think it's more taboos that I find interesting from an analytical way. Like I love looking at the things that people don't talk about. I love seeking out those vulnerabilities. It's not like I'm going into every convo being like, spill your secrets to me, but I already know what is there in a way. And I think when it came to things like sex, back then I was talking about it so freely and I wasn't even aware that not everyone could do that. And look, I was like a little bit of an odd growing up. So maybe it was just that I was a bit weird and, you know, everyone else was normal. So I think that I, I figured it out as I went along. And especially like after finishing my psychology degree in my early 20s, I didn't even know that sexology was a career until my mum told me it was.
1: I've heard you say that you listened to a TED Talk from Esther Perel, who is a pretty internationally well-known relationships expert. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment for you. Can you speak to that? Like what kind of impact did her words have on your career direction?
2: Yeah. The TED Talk that we're talking about is, is about infidelity in relationships. And basically, infidelity was so polarizing at that point because Esther Perel's talk was so new. And I think that I realized that If she can talk about the fact that all of these situations are dual sided and, you know, multifaceted and layered, why can't we talk about that for sexuality, especially for people in our generation and our age? There is no one right answer. And I think that that was the stage that I realized that you should never stereotype anyone because of what they're talking about or what they're presenting, because everything goes so much deeper than that. And that's what that talk taught me.
0: Mm. That inspired you, and my right, to go study abroad? You studied in the Netherlands. Was mm. that right? Was that because there's more of like a mentorship program over there than there is in Australia? Like there's not really much here to become a sexologist.
2: I wouldn't say that there's a mentorship program there. I, I would say that I created a mentorship <laughs> program there. So I couldn't find anyone in Australia that I really related to as a person. And, you know, I was also ready to just travel and live out my European time and utilize my passport and have fun. And I went around Europe actually searching for a mentor, but I didn't find the right person for me. Plus, I think it was risky for people to take me on at that stage. I was still quite young. I was like 22 years old or I don't know, maybe younger, 21. But I went around and it was literally on my last week there after a six-week trip that I met my mentor, Ingrid. Her clinic was an hour outside of Amsterdam. And I just said, I'll come work for you for free for six months while I'm doing my sexology degree. And she was like, yeah. And I ended up staying with her for a lot longer than that. She's, she's very funny. She's like, yeah, my last few students, she told me halfway through, my last few students have had mental breakdowns. Oh. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, why am I so stressed? <laughs> but you know what? She pushed me really hard And it suited me. And whilst I came back extremely burnt out, there's no way that I would be here in my career without her just saying, you need to work harder and you need to understand better. And I will sit here with you till 12.30am in the morning and explain to you what we're discussing. So
1: you came back to Melbourne after studying abroad. You were 26 when you opened your first psychosexology clinic, which is incredibly young to be starting your own business. Why was it so important for you to come back to Melbourne and create that safe haven
2: for sexology work? I just didn't have it here. Like there were no psychosexologists in a hospital. It's something that I've always aimed to do. I really loved working in hospitals when I was younger. I was a researcher at the Royal Children's and I just thought, why isn't it part of the medical system? You know, if we're talking about things that are so multifaceted and to do with physiological concepts and conditions, we need to incorporate this into a multidisciplinary team. And that's what I was taught by Ingrid, my mentor. Everything has to be multidisciplinary. So it was important for me because I needed to put it on the map here. It just wasn't here It at wasn't all? here. There are sex therapists, but I think in terms of the scope and in terms of the way that it was incorporated into a healthcare team – It was really hard for me to get to that point even when I came back, you know. I had platinum blonde hair and I was just this like funny little thing walking in. And people had like no idea what a sexologist was. So there was some medical sexologists who worked over at Monash who are incredible women. But they were very isolated and their waiting list was over a year. And I just thought, nah, we need to keep building on this. And I also wanted to give young people who were in my position – the opportunity to have a job at some stage.
0: It's a huge thing to embark on, right? Like it's one thing to say, I'm going to work as a sexologist. It's another thing to say, I'm opening my own clinic and I'm only 26. Were the people around you surprised when you said you were going to embark on something that's so huge or were they kind of like, no, that's Chantel. She's always been that driven. Yeah. I think they were just like, whatever, just let her do it. her <laughs> thing. Like, and I had no money. I was just
2: like, whatever. I had no funds, no help from anyone. And I just worked 6am till, you know, 11pm at night and I I went on so many meetings and I had to convince people to refer to me and... You know, started my Instagram and really just put my name out there and I loved every second of it.
1: Who are the kinds of people that you treat? For people listening to this who are thinking, okay, I've never seen a sexologist, I don't know anyone who's seen one, who do you treat?
2: Mm, everyone, anyone <laughs> and everyone. You know, all ages we have, some of my sexologists have working with children's checks, we see people with disabilities, we see males, females and anyone who doesn't identify in that category. For women, maybe it's desire issues or sexual pain or even just mental health conditions and how they impact our sexuality and and dating and communication with others. Lots of heavy trauma patients, lots of light trauma patients, you know. For a man, it's erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, it's communication difficulties around sex. It's any question that you have about sex, you can come in and we'll we'll work it out.
0: I feel like there are so many misconceptions when it comes to sex, intimacy and relationships, like in culture. I remember growing up and we watched Everybody Loves Raymond all the time like it was my parents favorite show and therefore I would watch it mm-hmm. every single week. And I remember the predominant storyline in Everybody Loves Raymond was that you will grow up, you'll marry someone and that husband will be nagging his wife for sex mm-hmm. every night or every week until they die. Mm-hmm. Like that's just how it's going to be, men want sex more than women. And I remember seeing it in that show but also more subtly maybe seeing it in all the other shows I was watching at the time as well. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I became an adult and have plenty of friends and have seen firsthand that that's not always the case. Very often the woman has a higher sex drive than the man. And that's a huge misconception out there that it's always the other way around. So I want to know, working in the industry you work in and seeing these patients all the time, what are the big misconceptions that stand out to you that kind of frustrate you? I mean, that's totally one of
2: them. I think that one of the misconceptions is that, like, around this men's sexuality, it's that men should know what they're doing all the time in the bedroom. And there's so much performance anxiety. And we all know that that's not the case. Like, how are any of us meant to be confident in the bedroom unless we are supported and treated with empathy and kindness and, you know, have some fun in there? Like, mess-ups happen. Like, none of us know what we're doing. We have to gain confidence with practice. So I think, you know, teaching people to always be kind to their sexual partners as long as there's kindness returned is super important. And to just communicate, 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 like, It's not like the movies. We don't have a Disney sex life. It is so the opposite of a Disney view of sex. It's really about just being real and being erotic and being a bit grotty sometimes and just having fun and laughing and being sweaty. It's nothing that you see in imagery and media.
1: When you're talking to patients, do you get a sense that there is like widespread insecurity that people feel like they're doing sex wrong?
2: Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> all the time that I have no idea what I'm doing or you know one of the the main things that I ask patients cuz when they come in they fill out a questionnaire which unfortunately for them is like five pages long <laughs> but I sit with them and do it because it's very important for me to understand their levels of anxiety if they have depression Contraception, medications, but also their sexual experiences and how they have enjoyed sex over their adult years Mm. until now. You can pick up whether from this questionnaire whether they have sexual problems or whether their partner has sexual problems. And I think a lot of the time people are just so unsure of what a healthy, pleasurable sex life is meant to look like and how to have fun in the bedroom because we're so goal oriented as a society.
0: Mm. Honing in on that, what would your definition of a healthy sex life look like? One that you feel confident
2: in. And I know that that will absolutely ebb and flow over the state of your relationship. It's not always going to be good. In fact, sometimes it's going to be pretty awkward. You're going to be knackered. You haven't done it for a while. So you're like, how do we even do this again? (laughs) Like, it's all pretty normal for it to be a bit of a roller coaster. And that's the same, you know, in my life, in all my sexologists life, it's not like, it's not (laughs) As shiny as it seems.
0: Not fireworks 100%
2: of the (laughs) time. Not always, but it should be like a good percent of the time, Mm -hmm. and you should be having fun and you should be expanding on your sexual menu and adding new things to it and enjoying the fact that you don't fit in a box sexually. You're allowed to be expansive.
0: Coming up after the break, how Chantel wrangles with her growing profile and being part of one of the country's most recognisable power couples. But first, a word from today's sponsor. I think
1: what's really interesting about this conversation and a lot of the people that you treat is one of the first interviews we ever did with you was on our podcast, Love Etc., which was maybe, was it two years ago? Two or three years ago. Two or three years ago. And I spoke to you about the fact that you treat patients who have vaginismus and vulvodynia, not telling you at the time that I had vaginismus myself. Mm. And since then, after having that conversation with you, I was like, okay, I'll just talk about it on microphone because what else do we do with our jobs? And Mm -hmm. between talking about it on microphone and writing it in our book over the past two years, I genuinely haven't seen anyone else have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Like I still don't hear anyone talk about it. And I want to know about the silence that envelops these conditions and how kind of how that can
2: add to the trauma of often experiencing them. Oh, uh, it's it's tremendous trauma, you know, the fact that I still have young women who have seen maybe 9 doctors come into my clinic and have seen pelvic floor physios but to no success, have maybe seen other specialists to no success. It's the fact that when you have someone in front of you that is suffering from a silent chronic condition, you need to absolutely look at their individual circumstances and make sure that they don't feel alone because that's when success of treatment goes down the drain. If you feel alone in your treatment in whatever position you're in, you're not going to be able to get anywhere. And that's my role as Chantal Otten and as a sexologist to be there and be like, you know what, it's me and you against whatever problem that you and your relationship have. The silence is Paramount, they are still not talking about it in medical degrees in Australia. You know, there are so many people that have a basic idea of how to treat vaginismus, but don't recognize that a huge part of it is in the brain.
1: And I think that's what's frustrating is every time we mention it, and I know it will happen after we mention it on this podcast, Mm -hmm. my inbox blows up to no end, like incredible amounts. And I'm like the dichotomy here between what I'm seeing publicly and what I'm seeing privately is quite extreme. And I think for any of those women who – are listening to this and thinking, I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go because all the messages that I read are, I haven't ever told anyone. Where would you say they go? What
2: do they do? <laughs> I mean, come see me. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, my whole clinic, everyone's specialized in this topic because, and I have, there's 20 staff there. We have pelvic floor physios. It's all in-house. So you don't feel like you're running between appointments. I think that's one huge thing. And, you know, I was I've been trying to see a chiropractor recently because I get migraines and I'm also like, It is so hard to go to appointments. Yes. It is so taxing to drive across town and do appointments. And that's why a lot of our stuff, pelvic floor physios online, like vaginismus, a lot of it you can just treat at home. Like it's not a scary process and it's the easiest sexual condition to fix. Mm -hmm. So, you know, anyone who's listening, if you feel like you are struggling – absolutely reach out because we'll be able to help you out as best we can.
0: I'm interested in what both of you think about this. Part of me, I've got friends with vaginismus who have never done anything about it. And I think one thing that I see as a friend is that so many women don't give enough legitimacy to how important their sexual pleasure and their sexual experience is. Like some of my friends will come back and be like, well, it doesn't matter. Like it shouldn't matter. It's a small thing and they downplay it. Do you see that with your patient's with some sexual health conditions that they haven't come in for years because they've always tried to push it down as something that's not really that important.
2: Yeah, of course. I think that we're just not taught that we deserve pleasure as Yeah, yeah. So, I think so for sure. Yeah. We don't even talk about the clitoris. Like a lot of women with vaginismus don't recognize the fact that they don't have to have penetration. Like if penetration feels like razor blades inside your vagina, let's focus on your clit until we can get a solution. You know, I think that we are taught that there is one type of sex to have and that's penetrative sex with an orgasm and that rules out so many people the lgbtqi community a lot of people with disabilities a lot of people with painful sex you know erectile dysfunction all of these things can make sure that you are not having this stereotypical view of like what sex is meant to be according to media so that's my job to just say you don't have to fit in a box
1: I mean, the other aspect of this is shame because I think it's not even just regarding sexual pain, but I think a lot of women who don't really enjoy penetrative sex, this is women in hetero relationships who may not actually be coming from it or anything of the sort, they are likely feeling shame because they feel like they're not doing it properly. Do you see that
2: too? Yeah, absolutely. And look, shame just clouds over anyone who comes into my clinic and that's why I guess... Um, my profile's been a lot bigger over the past few years. It's grown so much because it's just so normalized and shame-free. And I think that when we look at anything that is a secret or anything that other people do not understand or the fact that you have to say, actually, I just don't like sex, like that is something that people can judge you on. And that's a really scary and vulnerable place to be. But it, it doesn't have to be with, you know, support and with us even having this conversation, we will normalize it.
0: Mm. What is it about your job and your work that makes you feel fulfilled? I imagine there are some standout stories in your head of people whose lives you've changed, right?
2: Yeah. You know what? I was asked this a few days ago and I started crying and I don't often do that. And it's the fact that there are some people that I've seen that for the first year of their therapy couldn't even look me in the eye. Mm -hmm. And we had to write down how they were feeling and map it out and draw it out. And some of the people that I see can come back to me and say, oh, my God, I was able to have penetration for the first time or I'm able to have sex and have fun. Or even, like, the patients that I really specialize in are quite traumatic backgrounds and isolated youth and, you know, from lower economic status because most of my work now is pro bono. And I think that to be able to have them go on, like, one of them's just started university in her late 30s and wasn't able to even talk when we met each other. Like that is huge for me to just be able to give them that confidence and make sure that they feel like they are a part of a community and able to walk with their head held high and enjoy their life a little bit more, you know?
1: I mean, with this in mind, does it frustrate you looking at how sex is often presented in TV and film? Because I imagine you seeing your patients day to day, understanding what they're feeling, how isolated they feel, how dark their thoughts might be, and then looking at how sex is presented in all of pop culture. It must be really frustrating to say.
2: (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's like I grew up with this media as well yeah like it's something that I'm just so used to and I I'm not really an overthinker I just do what I can do and I make my mark and yeah it is frustrating to see that no one talks about painful sex or like that there are jokes made about premature ejaculation Mm -hmm. or erectile dysfunction I hate that I hate the fact that the reason why we have shame and silence in our society is because these things are made fun of in media of course but I'm hoping that a few more years <laughs> we'll be able to get to the place where there is more accurate representation.
0: I feel like a lot of it as well is having more diversity in the people who are writing the television shows, directing them, producing them, bringing them out to us, right? Like for so long, we saw the same kind of person sitting around a table mm. and we've got drip-fed some stories about sex that were truthful and honest. But in reality, we've had such a paternalistic idea of what su- sex... I almost said, what succession. I know. <laughs> succession. <laughs> but what sex should look like, that yeah. no wonder that we've just seen penetration and one style of sex held up as the ideal for so long. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, you know, I think with people like myself, with you guys, with Dylan even, like the way that we just be absolutely real and as much as that gets taken and thrown to Daily Mail and up <laughs> across the world talking about the realistic elements of my sex life, I don't care because other people can relate.
1: That's really interesting because I really wanted to ask you about the interview that you and your partner, Dylan, and we've mentioned Dylan a few times. He is a professional tennis player, Dylan Alcott, and you two have been very public about your sex life. And in this quote to Stella magazine, you said, a lot of people think people with a disability don't have sex, but I'm having the best sex of my life and it's important for me to say that. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to why it's important for you to
2: have that on the record publicly? Yeah, of course. It's not to float my own boat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very happy for you, though. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's more that getting with Dylan I was pretty nervous I'd never been with someone with a disability and he was pretty nervous to be getting with a sexologist because he'd never done that either but in my clinic I was already seeing people with disabilities it was a very big part of my life obviously growing up and I think the fact that people stereotype those with different abilities and say that they're not erotic people or treat them in a certain way, like they're special, et cetera, and wrap them uh, or I guess just put them in a box, you know, and also listening to Dylan about how bloody hard it was for him growing up and dating and, you know, having to learn all of these things with no role models to look up to. The reason why we talk about it is to be role models for those young kids who don't have anyone else in their mind who has a healthy relationship that has different abilities in it. I think we just need to speak to the fact people have sex in different ways. And of course, my partner can't use his legs. We are having sex in different ways to those who are able-bodied.
0: When we spoke to Dylan, this time last year, actually, I think it's almost one year to the day that we Mm. interviewed Dylan. He said some pretty wonderful things about you. The main Mm. thing though, was how proud he is of you. Like he literally beams whenever your name comes out of his mouth. We want to know, what do you love about Dylan and your relationship together? Oh, God.
2: How long do you have? Um, Quite a while, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that Dylan is not just the most excellent partner. I've come into a relationship with him after being in different relationships and living across different cultures and having maybe quite an intimidating career for a lot of people and getting with him. And seeing him support taboo topics like sexuality, seeing him support me and my growth in this field and having him be very understanding of the fact that I am a bit more controversial for someone who's in the limelight already to be dating is just absolutely so, I mean, it just makes me so happy. And I think that whatever I do in life, I know that I have someone that will back me and I know that I never have to be scared to say how I'm feeling He's also just on board with developing as a couple. Like, we can do therapy together to learn how to communicate better with each other. If I'm, you know, overwhelmed by the fact that we're going on all these tennis tournaments and it can be quite isolating sometimes, he's like, just take a day, do what you need to do to be Chantel. I think that he has been so pivotal in the way that I've grown as a person over the past two years since we've been together that I'm just so grateful, essentially, and I mean he's just a wonderful guy in general. Mm.
1: It's funny because
2: I wonder with all the work that you do, and
1: it is sex based, but it's also relationships based. Do you think that you are a better relationship person now because you've learned so much through your work, or is that would that just be a massive misconception?
2: Mm. No, no, no. I think that's a that's good. But look, I do therapy as well, and Dylan and I do couples therapy as prevention to make sure that we know you know, how we can handle life's challenges that are thrown at us. And every relationship will have that. Just because we're in the limelight does not mean we are immune to those things. That learning through the clinic, learning through life experience as well, you know, and I think it's pretty public knowledge that I was married before I was with Dylan, having a breakdown of a marriage, getting with someone who is so different and spectacular and also adjusting to limelight all of these things have just taught me to just be myself and low-key and you know just I, I think I've pretty much found my place now yeah. as an adult
0: how have you found the limelight I mean I looked on your Instagram page yesterday in prep for this interview you have almost a hundred thousand followers now that is exponential growth to the last time we spoke to you I don't remember what it was then it was but like it definitely seven. was yeah, it, <laughs> It wasn't anything. We were like early adopters of Chantal Hodden. We were really obvious. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> How does that feel though? Like that's a lot of people taking an interest in your life. The yeah. Daily Mail takes an interest in anything you say. Shout yeah. out to any journalists who might be listening. <laughs> well, How does that feel? Do you like it? Do you find it anxiety-inducing? What's your relationship with the public profile? Look, I think that at the start it
2: was definitely anxiety-inducing as I got to adjust to it and adjust to your like – Some of the articles that are out are just so unflattering. But I actually don't give a shit, to be honest. Like I live a beautiful life. I'm not someone who ever asked for Limelight. I just asked to change a conversation that we're having. So I wouldn't ever consider myself – I'm not a celebrity. I'm just an expert in my field and it's gaining attention, which is so wonderful. I think that I can only be grateful for the people that do support me and people that do follow me like I'm, I'm so grateful. That's what I'm saying to everyone <laughs> yeah. listening because thank you so much. You are part of that conversation. I would never be able to have these conversations without people backing me up. Mm-hmm. And look, I think I've met some pretty extraordinary people along this journey as well who are able to help me spread that word. Mm-hmm.
1: How much do you think the conversation is changing? Because I think we're still in a place where some things are taboos. I
2: mean, we've been talking
1: about them as taboos this Mm. entire time. But how much have you seen the conversation change as your career
2: has got more high profile? Oh, I've seen a big change, but remember that I'm in a bubble. You know, yeah. I'm in a sex bubble. <laughs> <laughs> what a bubble! To a be. sexy little bubble. No, look, I think it's changed quite a bit. I still think that people whisper things and you know try and corner me at parties and clubs and want to talk about all these things <laughs> that they can't talk about with their friends. Oh, i um, like 3 a.m. in the morning. It was like the other day I was at a club and this girl goes, I've got so many questions for you. And I was like, it's not the time, book a session. Like, My
0: hourly rate is. I was just
2: like, I would love to help you. But, you know, I, I really think that, I do think the conversation is changing. I think that we have amazing people that have gained courage. Maybe as more and more people are talking about sexuality, talking about things like endo, talking about things like vaginismus, and I guess talking about how to advocate for themselves, I have seen the conversation change and I'm looking forward to seeing it change, you know, over the next 18 months. I mm. really do think that it's going to get a lot better.
0: Yeah, Going back to you and Dylan for a little bit, I mm. think what I find so interesting about you two, I mean, many things, but one in particular is that you are a powerhouse couple together, but also as individuals in your own right, you are both at the top of your career or definitely the top so far. I mean, he has just won another Australian Open title. He's yeah, what, yeah. sixth, seventh? Seventh. Seventh. Mm. You are going from strength to strength. You're just ballooning in popularity and profile and your voice how SMR. do you guys balance – it's the for sure. How do you guys balance that? How do you kind of have a dynamic where you're allowed to flourish individually but also kind of nurture that bond that you have?
2: Oh, I think we're just really real. You know, we un- we're definitely – absolute slob kebabs at home. (laughs) Um, No, look, we make sure that we live our individual lives. I very much prioritize having my time to be Chantelle Otten, because if I don't feel connected to myself, if I can't do things like see my girlfriends, have deep conversations with my girlfriends, my, you know, other people that I find interesting, then I cannot excel in what I'm doing in work or in home. I become agitated. I'm Sagittarius. I become flighty, (laughs) you know, and if Dylan's exactly the same and maybe it's because he's also a saggy I don't know but um if he isn't able to see his friends if he's not able to train if he's not able to focus on the many businesses that he's juggling then he's not feeling fulfilled there's no way for me to be able to go into this relationship and make it all encompassing I don't think that that's important I think that we need to do our individual things and I need to give my energy and my time to my friends to my loved ones and to my business so that I'm able to be the person that he got with, essentially. Nothing changes. You just grow and develop as a couple. And I think that motivation is extremely important. We're both so motivated to change the conversation around sexuality and disability.
0: Do you think it was really crucial as well that you're such good communicators? I mean, dating an athlete is difficult, I imagine, for a lot of people, but also one that travels a lot. I imagine there were a lot of conversations in the early days to be like, Yes, your job is really important, but so is mine. Mm. I think that we just
2: winged it. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's actually more on the ball with me. About that, he's like, You have to keep working, you have to do your thing. And that's not like you have to get to work, it's like, <laughs> It's more like I support you and it's important for you. Because, of course, like we're traveling for four months of the year. Oh, four months usually. Oh, wow. my more God. Also, like it's it, before COVID, it was yeah. way more than that like five or six months of the year. And I'm very lucky that I have such an amazing team and that my patients are very understanding and I can do online. But I also use that time for creativity as well. And I enjoy it. And I love being with him on those tournaments. Dylan's got so much energy. Like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh my God, it was a big day for me. And he's like, okay, he just one, I was open. I'm, yeah. like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Listening to all of this is making me a bit tired. Yeah.
1: I'm like, I just sit here behind Mike mic and talk all day. <laughs> Chantel, what do you want most out of your career? You've got... I mean, the last couple of years have been incredible, but you've got so much more time. What do you want?
2: Yeah, I was talking about this with my mum this morning and the poor baby, she has not seen me for weeks because we've both been so busy. And I was just sitting there and saying, you know what I would absolutely love to have? a big holistic clinic in Melbourne that's way more than sexology. It's women's health, it's men's health, it's skin, it's I want to go get my Botox done at work. and (laughs) I want fertility to be done there. I want there to be group yoga. I want it to be all-encompassing, naturopathy, acupuncture. I would love to have a huge practice in Melbourne. But I think also just in general for my career, the only thing that I ever wanted out of my career was to have a really great place to work and to have peace. And I have that. And yes, there are times where I'm way too burnt out and
0: overcommitted
2: and I don't have that peace, but all I want to have is work-life balance.
0: I love that. The second last question we ask every in-conversation guest is the same. And it is, if there was a table of acquaintances or maybe people who follow you on Instagram talking about you, Mm. what are the main things you would want those people to say? What's the impression you want to leave people with?
2: I want them to feel that I'm relatable. I just want them to feel like that we're all on the same table together. I never see it as like, oh, Chantel's the expert and, you know, like got to ask her all these things. We all learn off each other. All I want to do is have an open conversation. So I want to be relatable.
0: You want to be invited to the table. I want to be fucking invited to the
2: table. I don't want anyone to be like, she's a flog, get her out of here. I just want to have fun, you know. I also would like them to think or just see that I'm a lot quirkier than what you can see on Instagram. I mean, as we've all talked about before, it's (laughs) – it's a social media app where you see photos like you've seen me in my business capacity and I give you a little bit of information about my personal life but there's so much more depth and you know I invite anyone in to learn more and, and to reach out like I'm, I'm here. With all of this in mind our last question what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Success to me is when I am healthy enough to take care of the people around me.
0: That's I it. I love Nice and simple. So simple. Mm. And it really ties back into what you want from your career as well, kind mm. of that very holistic, nurturing sense of
2: health. I've had illnesses over my time. I've been burnt out. I've had <laughs> I had an eating disorder. I've had all these things that impact the way that I'm able to live an adequate quality of life. And I've made sure that in my adult years that I can have an environment that people feel like they can thrive and if they need time to take care of their health, they can. And that includes me. I need to take care of my health so that everyone else benefits from that. Chantelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. you.
0: are just the best. I feel so relaxed. Nicole. I know. <laughs> and we're just such huge fans. So thank you for giving us your time. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Chantel Odden. If you enjoyed this episode, as you heard in this chat, last year we sat down with Dylan Olcott and heard all about his life in professional sport. It was one of my personal favorite In conversations, so I'll pop the link for that one in our show notes if you want to have a listen. As for us, we release new interview episodes every Monday, as well as pop culture rap episodes every Thursday. To be the first to know every time a fresh episode of Shameless drops into the feed, make sure you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. That's all from us, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through